Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we're going to be finishing up this series on privatized banking and what kind of policy do you use? Last time we talked about this, we covered the first portion of answering all of the questions about what kind of policy is the best to have in place to be able to use for privatized banking. And today we're going to give a quick recap and then dive into the second part of that. So I'm one of your hosts, Rachel, and this is Bruce with us as well. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. Yes, it's it's nice today that we're going to go into the second half of this and start trying to uh, differentiate why it's important to have specially designed life insurance contracts for a place to store your money. And this, and I'm emphasizing the specially designed because that's when we're talking about uh, the exact funding ratios. I often sit, I have sat down with many of my clients over the years and they'll say things like, well, I don't even need life insurance. Uh, and we could, we could do a whole program and, and we have done programs on, Mm-hmm. Why why a person wants to protect it frees you up, but uh, you know I don't get in an argument of say I I would say okay let's let's even say you don't need life insurance and this happened to me just the other day I said where do you store your money and they and they say well I store it in a bank I have some CDs I have some money markets so on and so forth but I don't understand why I would put in life insurance because you know I I know I'm not going to be able to touch it for a long time. Well, that's because they're looking at it as the traditional or um, typical, I should say, way of of actually funding a whole life insurance policy in the form of accumulation for future needs. And what we're talking about is to try to mimic a, a bank storage where you would have a lot of liquidity in just 30 days. So that's what we're going to focus on today and, uh, and also to explain other characteristics of a special design policy. You know, I, I, I've often said this to clients. I wish they wouldn't call it premium because premiums mm-hmm. sound like you're, you're paying for something. You're not actually storing something because we're, we're used to premiums for our car insurance. We're used to premiums for our homeowner's insurance, and you're not storing money in that situation. I wish right. you could call it deposits, just like you call it in a bank, but they don't allow that by um, state laws to be called a deposit. But frankly, that's all you're doing is depositing it in a form of a premium into uh, a overfunded savings component. Right. So conceptually, it really helps to be able to think of it that way, even if we're not actually calling it that. Yes, exactly. So today, as we go through the second portion of describing what type of policy you want to use for privatized banking, here's what we're going to do. We're going to show you why there is only one type of policy and how to make sure that you don't buy one that underperforms. And as Bruce mentioned, we're going to show you those adjustments that you want to make to typical whole life insurance that guarantee you're not going to be waiting forever to build up the cash value so that you can use that policy. So real quickly, we'll set the stage again here, and you can go back to part one of this episode, and that's going to give you the lay of the land, so to speak. But you want to be able to have cash to begin investing in, and you want to maximize the long-term growth of your cash value inside of a policy. So we want early cash value, and we want long-term growth. 
And so we accomplished that by designing the policy in a specialized way. So as you're looking for the right life insurance policy to use for privatized banking, we want to give you the ideas to be able to answer these questions. What do I need? What are the essentials to make sure the policy performs best? Can I use any cash value life insurance product? What makes it specially designed? How is it different than typical whole life? And how do I ensure that it's not going to take 20 years to build up that cash value so I can use my cash value quickly to invest in other opportunities? So last time we we covered through this and we really talked a little bit last time. Well, we talked a lot about the three major types of insurance. We talked about whole life, term life insurance, universal life insurance. There's another variable life insurance we didn't discuss much, but there's another type there. Um, we also talked about the only kind of company you want to work with being a mutual company because they pay out dividends, which will again, increase your cash value and add to your growth. We talked about having this map to be able to label all of the crucial components inside of that privatized banking policy. We talked about wanting to make sure you have guaranteed premium. We talked about what to look for inside of the cash value, that dividends are added as a non-guaranteed element on top of the contractual guarantees inside the policy that continue to add to its growth. And we want to make sure that policy doesn't mech and lose its tax advantage. If you want more in-depth information on any of those, go back and check out part one. But today we're going to start by talking about what are those exact funding ratios that we want to have in the premium, or as Bruce mentioned, you you mentioned a second ago, the deposit or the part that you put into the policy. How do we want to structure that so that you ensure that you have the early maximum cash value up front and then also continue on that guaranteed or that growth in the maximum capacity so you have the most growth over time as well? Yeah, and in in order to do this, Rachel, and you you mentioned this, but I want I want the the listeners to understand what you were actually saying is you you could give up liquidity early on, and when you do that, you actually maximize long term growth to to the fullest. So you're telling the company I don't want any access early because I'd like 25, 30, 40 years from now to have the maximum long-term growth. That is one way to design it. To us, that's an accumulation plan. And it's it's not that it's a bad plan, but when we talk about controlling one one's money, we think people can get in trouble by doing something like that. Now, if you have access to capital outside of that, you might want to do that for a variety of reasons. That one also will build up your death benefit the highest because there are three components and we'll talk about that in just a bit. But if you want to maximize, or and here's the art part of it, and this is where Nelson Nash designed this so well over his career. If you want to maximize very good liquidity in, in within 30 days, along with long-term growth, then you really have to balance the difference between what we call the base policy and the paid up additions rider. Now, a lot of companies, and we, and you know, we use a variety of companies, a lot of companies call this paid up additions rider different things. And and mm-hmm. and I'll I'll bring in that in a second when we start to talk about this. But I wanted to just to emphasize there is a difference between 
liquidity early. If you don't have any liquidity early, you actually are going to maximize the long-term growth, but you give up the control of the money. If you if you have a lot of liquidity early, and I've talked to producers, insurance producers that have actually done this, they say, well, I can give them 90% liquidity, but what they end up doing is giving up long-term growth. So what you're trying to do is find a balance between that fits, fits, your, fits your clients. And I'm really glad you came back to that because I was going to bring us back as well if you didn't. But in my mind, I see it almost like a teeter-totter like a seesaw that you had on the old fashioned playgrounds. I haven't seen them much anymore, but you want that balance point in the middle. It's almost like on one side, you have as much cash value up front as possible. The other thing you're trying to accomplish on the other side of the teeter totter is the greatest long-term growth. And you don't want to sacrifice one to get the other. We really want both. And the way to get both is in the funding structure and the ratios that you put into how you pay that premium. So we're talking about the advantage we want to get is to maximize both the early cash value and the long-term growth. And now we're going to tell you how we accomplish that. Does that sound good? That sounds great. So let's, let's get started. Before we go any further, in the last episode, we did talk about a modified endowment contract. And a mod- modified endowment contract is simply <clears throat> a set of actuarial rules that the IRS has placed on these type of of contracts, and these are on um, any kind of permanent contract. So they would also be on a universal life and a variable universal life, index universal life. So what it's basically saying is the IRS requires that the death benefit be at a certain level for you to be able to put money into and allow it to grow tax-free. Now, if you, if you do not maintain those levels in a one-year period and, and over a set, the first seven-year period, then the IRS would consider it a modified endowment contract or what we say in the industry, a MEC. You have MEC the policy. That's still okay. It's not like the, they're not going to honor the contract, but now... Anything above the basis, the cost basis, which is simply how much, how many premiums you put in. So, example, if you put $100,000 of premiums in and it grew to $105,000, you now will have to pay taxes on the $5,000 growth that you have. So, that's what we're talking about as far as we're designing these also not to mech. Now, there are some cases where we do not care if we met the policies, but we're not going to talk about those cases in this program. We're just going to talk about designing these so that they don't mech. So the first part of the design, whenever we do this, is we look at the base policy. And the base policy is exactly what it seems like. It's the primary payment or deposit into the policy, and it establishes a death benefit. That death benefit um, is dependent upon the age of the person, the gender of the person, the person's habits, such as if they're a skydiver, if they uh, smoke, if they're a scuba diver, if they're in the military, so on and so forth. So everybody's death benefit can potentially be different because of age, gender, and habits. 
then they establish that baseline. The actuaries say, okay, for that person's uh, age, gender, and habits, we're going to say if they put in X amount of dollars, you're going to have a base policy that's going to pay X amount of death benefit. Then off of that, we say, okay, now we would like to put more money in to actually establish the savings component. Now, the way- Because Bruce, I just want to interject here. So if you put a policy in force with only base premium- Yes, you can do that. You would end up with a policy that has long-term growth, but you would have very little- access to cash value upfront, correct? Very good. Yes, that's a very good point to make. You can do this and a lot of companies will do this, but what they're what they're focusing on is the long-term growth. I'm not going I'm going to give up liquidity early and in in many cases it's a lot of liquidity, like zero in the first couple of years, a very small percentage in the years two and then it keeps growing over time. Um, so these are the policies when you hear somebody say I don't like whole life insurance because I don't have access to any cash until 20 years. It takes forever to build up that cash value. Why would I do that? Because I don't really have access to my money. That is the reason for that. That's if a policy is designed with all or mostly base premium. Correct. And I always like to say, as we design this, think of base is like you're buying a house. So you haven't bought the entire death benefit yet. The company is saying you have to make this uh, deposit in the form of a premium, either monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, or annually, and you're buying this death benefit just like you're buying a house, like a mortgage on the house. And as you're doing that, just like when you're buying a house, you're building up equity slowly that you can go back and access later on in your life, and so thus the closer you come to the 30-year period, uh, the closer you are to paying it off, and you're going to then have access to a lot of money. So if people think of the base policy, think of the death benefit as being the home, and that the base premium or or how you're making a deposit into the home, just like you make a deposit in your mortgage into home, as your equity growing over time. I love that example and and I love how it works as we flesh out the other portions of premium or the other uh, pieces that we deposit into the policy because it really helps understand the full picture. So Bruce, now that I feel like we've laid a really good foundation and have a really good understanding of what base premium does, how it builds the death benefit and maximizes the long-term growth, if we don't want just a base policy, what is the next type of premium that we can put in so that we can accelerate that early cash value. Yeah, you can either add a rider or most of the companies actually come with a rider that allow you to give one-time payments every year to the company in the form of a premium. And that particular premium then buys up or it pays up. That's why it's called PUA, paid up addition. Think of this, I always say this to clients, and I, and I think this helps people. You have bought a small life insurance policy. So let's just use an example. So you have the opportunity from this rider to say, hey, I have an extra $1,000 or $5,000 or $10,000 this year, and I want to 
place it in the form of a premium or deposit it into the policy, I don't want to ever put any more money into it after this year. Into that portion. In that portion. portion, I never want to do that again. How much will you give me in death benefit for this $10,000? And they will tell you, depending on your age, your gender, and your habits, what you can actually expect a death benefit. So um, let's say you have $10,000, you give it to them, they may increase uh, your death benefit by two and a half times. So now you have a $25,000 death benefit that goes on top of your base uh, death benefit. And it's paid up. That death benefit, never that $25,000 that was purchased with that $10,000 never has to have another dime go into it. It is yours. You have bought it. The difference is the base, you're buying it with a, a paid up additions rider or a PUA. You have bought it. Once again, if we go back to our home situation, let's say you go to the um, the bank and you say, uh, well, no, let's let's back up here. <laughs> Let's say you go to a contractor and you say, I want to put a garage on my house and I have $10,000 put a garage on my house. The, mm -hmm. the contractor builds the garage on the house and it's all completed. Then you go back to the bank and say, hey, I want you to do an appraisal on my house. And the bank comes back and says, your house is now worth $25,000 more because you have a nice garage on it. And you never have to put another $10,000 into your house to have the appraisal be up $25,000. So you've increased your liquidity immediately in your house by $25,000 or the equity in your house by $25,000. Right. So I love that example because I feel like it's a really visual and tangible way of understanding the difference between paid up additions and the base premium. So again, the base premium is like paying a mortgage payment. It's a really small payment for a big value. You're paying a little bit at a time over time, and your equity grows really slowly. But with the paid up additions rider, it's like you're dumping the full amount of equity into something that's now fully paid up. If you weren't thinking about a garage on your house, you could almost think, how can I buy a small rental property and pay 100% cash for it so that I have very much almost all of my equity available to me right right away yeah so that's where you're boosting up that other side of the teeter-totter or the seesaw that's where we're getting the high cash value right up front from the paid up additions rider yeah and the only thing that's bad about this um example is the house can go down in value or the rental property can go down in value whenever you put in money into your life insurance policy it that money you put in is guaranteed by the company that when you put $10,000 in it, the $10,000 will, will be there for you, plus any contractual interest guarantees. Dividends are not contractually guaranteed, uh, but they're highly likely. So just the piece about the dividends real quick. So if we go back, what's happening is we're on a guaranteed basis putting in our premium. And Bruce, I'm not sure how we want to make, maybe make this part as simple as possible, but we're putting in guaranteed for sure. We have to put in the base premium. We're putting in the paid up additions, which is flexible, meaning that you could pay it or could not in a certain year. And there's a lot of rules surrounding that, mm -hmm. but you have flexibility to not pay all of the base and the paid up additions within a year, but you're putting that money in and then you're building up a cash value and you're building up your death benefit. 
on, as you mentioned, the dividends, those are, there's two sides of the policy illustration. When you yes. put in your premium, you're seeing on one side, the guaranteed growth based on interest. Now, both your paid up, both your base premium and your paid up additions are both contributing to that guaranteed growth. On top of the guaranteed growth, you have the other side of the illustration that shows the ad, the added benefit of non-guaranteed dividends. So I just want to make that clear distinction between what's guaranteed and what's not guaranteed. In the Correct. And, and, and here's another thing um, between the, the base, which we know it's a long-term accumulation of equity, and the PUAs with, with, with this an immediate um, uh, accumulation of equity is that the policy when a dividend is declared and like and like we've mentioned before the companies that we use have declared dividends for well over 100 consecutive years including through the great recession and the great depression so even though they're not guaranteed they're highly likely we just can't use the word guarantee and we will and every time Rachel you and I sit down with people we always remind them that dividends are not guaranteed but because of the track record of the companies through the through the Great Recession and Great Depression, we say they are well, they can make their own determination. But you, we say you can see how they're highly likely to happen. But the right. base, the base, the, the dividends are paid on um, a ratio, an actuarial ratio based upon your age and your death benefit. It's a very complicated formula. But I just want to simply say that you get more dividends on your base policy because it's a higher death benefit than you do on your PUAs because it's a lower death benefit. And I, another way to think about this is they can't pay you a lot of dividends on the highly liquid part of your policy. So if it's not as liquid, then they pay you a greater death benefit. And that means that you would get a, a greater portion of the dividend. So that's a way to, to think about the two dividends also. Now, the other thing, uh, although dividends are not guaranteed, once they are distributed into your policy, that cash value that was distributed into your policy is now guaranteed uh, for as long as the policies in, in in place. Absolutely. And that is what sets the new floor. And as soon as you have those dividends added and the growth added through interest to the policy, that's your new floor. Your value, the cash value is never going to dip below that in the future. Correct. So, and now the ahead. next, yeah, the, ne the next thing I think we need to say is there's a ratio here. And sometimes right. because of the MEC ratio, the MEC uh, rules, we have to add one more thing on this, and that is we may have to bump the um, bump the death benefit, the overall death benefit, the base death benefit, the paid up additions death benefit isn't high enough to satisfy the MEC rules. So we actually place a short term term rider to bump the death benefit up to the IRS rules, and it does require you to put some money in to pay for that that uh, particular term uh, benefit. But we then evaluate, is it better to pay that term and then have the, the cash value grow tax-free? And in most cases, 
it is a it is a better des- uh, decision to do that. And I just want to point out as well, because we didn't specifically articulate this, a rider is something you're adding on to that that specific policy. So Bruce, as you're talking about adding on a term rider, that's a portion of the same illustration for your same whole life insurance policy that's a specially designed contract. We're not talking about having one whole life policy and a completely separate term life insurance policy with two separate policy numbers. We're talking about having one policy that has an added term rider inside of it. Yeah. And I used to use, I love to use analogies. So I used to do this in the eighties and it's probably not as appropriate anymore, but in the eighties, when you bought a car, your car would be like your base policy. And then a rider would be things that you wanted to add on to the car, like air conditioning. Well, now I can't (laughs) really say that because all cars have air conditioning. Oh, I'm showing my age now, Rachel. But you could uh, say it's, you know, I don't know, the um, lane, uh, I don't know, recognition system for right, self-driving or, or something. Four, right, or four-wheel drive. Or automatic or, four-wheel drive, uh, yeah. Or, nav- or the navigation system. Right. Um, so anything you add onto a car, it, the car's the base, and then you add a rider onto it. You don't have to add it on, and then you and then you keep the expenditures down. But then you have to say, do I want that because I'd like to enhance it or specially design my car? What you're doing now is you're specially designing your your life insurance contract. Absolutely. So let's come back to that ratio for just a minute because now, again, it would be possible to have all base. I don't know if it's possible, Bruce. I'm sure you can speak from experience on this. I don't know if it's possible to have all paid up additions. Um, but what we want to do is we want to find that balance point. And again, this is going to be different for each person, but there is kind of a a sweet spot that we find works for the maximum benefit on both sides. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit, Bruce? Yeah. And most, and it's different for every company and it's also different for every product. So even though we're going to, we're going to bring out this uh, portion, we don't, we don't always stick to this for a variety of reasons. And that's why you need to work with somebody that understands your needs. But we always, the best design that we've learned from the Nelson Nash Institute is that if you have 33% base and 66% PUAs, and that leaves you about 1% to use for a term rider if you need. Um, so example, if if you have $10,000 a year to put in on it, 3,300 of that would go to the base 6,600 of that would go to the paid up additions rider and $100 of that would go to the term rider. Mm -hmm. So that we have found is the best ratio to actually get you access to cash early. And in this case, within 30 days, you'd have access to between 60 and 70% of of the 6,600. I'm sorry, of the the 10,000. Which is going to be close somewhere between six thousand and seven thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and that also gives you good long term dividend growth because the base policy has still has thirty three percent in it, and every time you actually put your dividends back into the policy, you're going to get dividends on the dividends because your base your base uh, death benefit is enhanced by the PUA death benefit, and thus you're going to have a growth factor there also. So a 33 to 66 ratio is where we always start, 
It doesn't mean that's where we're always going to stay because some people, Rachel, say to us, and we and you and I help them determine, hey, I need more protection early. Right. So if they need more protection early, we say we could do it one or two different ways. We could say, well, we're going to ramp up the base death benefit by paying more into the base and give up a little more liquidity, or we can add a term rider onto it, or we can use a different product that actually enhances the death benefit in a different way. And we might get closer to a 50-50 split or a 60-40 split. So there are a variety of ways. And once again, that's why you have to work in our minds with somebody that has literally done thousands of these. So they know how to design these specially for you and how your particular family needs are. Absolutely. And I love how we're focusing on the benefit and what you get as the owner of this privatized banking system, because that's really what this is all about. This is all about saying, what do you want to accomplish? And then how can we design the right system and strategy and product around that need so that you can best accomplish your life goals and maximize and optimize your money? So Bruce, you mentioned some of the add-ons that you can put onto a car. Let's kind of talk about those in terms of maybe even high performance modifications that you can make. Um, there's a few things that we can add on to this policy, not necessarily in the term of in the form of a rider, but additional things we want to think about within this privatized banking policy. And one of them is that you have many different options for what your dividends can do when the dividend is paid out. Mm-hmm. And so Bruce, you want to talk about how we have determined the best, most optimal use of what to do with those dividends in order to maximize the performance. Yeah. So what you can do is you can, I'll just tell you, there's several things you can do with the dividends. You can use the dividends to pay future premiums. If you'd like, you can use, you can actually have them send you, excuse me, you have them send you a dividend check. So you get the check in the mail. And frankly, that's what some people will do in the future when they want to get a, like a passive income later on, or you can have dividends set to purchase more paid up additions or more death benefit in the future. And that's the way that we determine in most cases, that's the best thing to do because what ends up happening, you, you purchase the, uh, you have bought the paid up, the little policy that increases your overall death benefit And that also helps you with accumulating more dividends in the future, and it grows your cash value uh, much more quickly that way. So that's the first one that we, the writer, we put on for paid up additions, and that's how you can use dividends. I almost think of it as compound interest. I mean, because it's the same thing when you have compound interest or you have a, a principal amount, you add interest to it, and then you lump the whole two together, the principal and the interest, and now you're going to earn interest on the whole. That's what you're doing when you take those dividends to purchase more paid up addition, paid up additions inside the policy. You're now having more money that can grow. Another thing that we want to talk about is waiver of premium. And this is something that would help in a case where maybe you have a situation and your income is stopped due to disability and you want to continue on that policy, but you're now concerned, how am I going to fund this life insurance policy when I don't have the same income due to disability? Bruce, you want to talk about that for a little bit? 
Yeah, there's another there's something else you can put on. It's called waiver of premium. Now, th- there are some riders that you can put on policies that do not cost any more for you. And there's other riders that say that they you actually can pay a premium, like the, the term policy rider you have to pay an additional premium for. And the waiver of premium is the same way. So the, the insurance company will continue to fund your policy if you become disabled. And uh, we actually think this is a good idea. It's another protection. So if you're unable to do that, they will make the, in most cases, they will only make the base policy uh, premium, not your paid up additions premium, your base policy premium. So if you become disabled and you're unable to pay your premium, you they will still make that premium payment for you. So you will continue to get cash value and your death, your death benefit will be guaranteed. Absolutely. And there's more that we will say in future episodes on that as well, because there's different options. You can even have waiver of premium on a term life insurance policy, for instance, with the option to be able to convert over to a whole life policy if disability did occur. So there's a lot of options there, a lot of flexibility, and just know that it does a very good service for people who suffer through a disability prior to death. We think about life insurance being this thing that will help us at that moment when we transition from this natural life to an eternal life, but it also can do a lot more for us during our life when we have no health problems and everything is going very well. And it can also serve us tremendously if there's anything that happens that slows us down in the meantime. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing that I want to uh, mention here as well, let's talk about, I feel like there's um, there's a lot of different ways that we could go with all of this because there's just so much packed in. I think we've really covered a wide range of what's really valuable, but let's talk real quickly, Bruce, about break-even years. When we look at the policy, how do we want to think about break-even and this idea of when do I have access to all my cash value and when am I growing and how does that, how do we think about that in terms of the policy growth? Yes. And um, this is this is challenging on a podcast when you're talking about this verbally. So I'm going to try to paint a, paint a picture for you. So in the first year, if we say you're putting $10,000 in it and within 30 days on the guaranteed side, you would have, and let's review, guaranteed means only your guaranteed interest that will be added at the end of one year or your policy's anniversary the non-guaranteed side will include the dividend. So we're going to just start, we're just going to talk about the guaranteed side for right now. So once 30, 30 days passes, and one of the reasons 30 day, it's 30 days because they like to see the, the check clear, the contracts delivered, so on and so forth, you're going to have access, depending on your age, your gender, and your habits, um, to b- between 60 and 70% of this. And when you do that, then the next year you're going to put another $10,000 in potentially. You don't have to. They're specially designed. And we'll talk about that later on in another podcast about different ways you can pay for the policy. But let's say you do put $10,000 in it. Now the liquidity of that $10,000 goes up. So depending on your age, gender, and habits, you're going to have access to about 70 to 78% or so of that $10,000. The next year, 
um, you put $10,000 in. In this particular year, the liquidity goes into the 80 to 85%. However, when you look at the growth of your cash value, oftentimes when you put $10,000 in, the your cash value actually goes up by $10,000. And that's kind of a hard conceptual thing to think about. But the the 80 to 85 percent is the stacking. So if you take mm-hmm. 10,000, 20,000, 30, so you put in a total premium of 30,000, and then you have access to about 80 percent, that means your cash value would be at 24,000. But when you, before you put that $10,000 in, the year before your cash value was sitting at about, say, 14,000 because 14,000 of 20,000 is 70%. So that means that 14,000 grew by 10,000 in one year and that is equal to your premium. So that's kind of what we we consider the break even point. And I tell my clients all the time, if you can put $10,000 in this and your cash value grows by 10,000 and you have access to that money within 30 days, why wouldn't you put $10,000 in it? Because you could just access it again in 30 days, just like if you were to go to a bank. Now, people might say, well, what if I need it within 30 days? Well, you and I both espouse to having your 15-minute money in in the bank. Right, cash in the safe or under the mattress or something. Right. Something that's Yeah, and there's there's ways to get it faster than 30 days. You just have to prove to the bank. And these are all the tricks that people that have done a lot of these know. You just have to prove from the bank your, that it has left the bank and you can take a snapshot of your, your online banking and send it to the insurance company and you could get it in the five to seven business days. So there's a, there's, there's a, there's a lot of little liquidity tricks that you can actually uh, uh, access your money even quicker than this. So there's another thing that I want to bring up real quick. And I think this is for more so the person maybe who already is familiar with life insurance and is asking some questions about more of the technical aspects. And so there's a few things that we just want to make sure we don't focus on the minors. When we're looking at privatized banking and whole life insurance, it's really important to have those guarantees that we talked about. It's really important to make sure we're working with a reputable company. It's really important to make sure that we're funding it in a way that's going to maximize the value for us. We're going to have the early cash value growth. We have the long-term growth rate with the dividends as well. The performance aspects are really important, but sometimes people can get focused and major on the minors and really make a make something into a really big deal that may not be the most important thing to focus on within that privatized banking system and the special design. So I feel that uh, there's a few things that come up with that. And one is um, focusing on dividend rates and one is focusing on direct versus non-direct recognition. And I just Mm want to put maybe a minute or two that we can talk about this real briefly. And those are going to be topics again that we come back to and discuss in future episodes. But Bruce, let's talk real quickly about dividend rates because you and I've had all these discussions where we know that they fluctuate over time. Different companies will illustrate different dividend rates in this current year, but over time they tend to kind of average out and really perform about equally from company to company. You want to share a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I'm an old basketball and football coach, and we used to always say when you're designing plays, the offensive guy is designing the play, and then the defensive guy comes in and says, well, if you do that, then I'm going to design my defense to do this. And then the offensive guy says, well, if you do that, then I'm going to do this. <clears throat> and dividend illustrations are the same way. You can have one company say, well, we're going to illustrate our dividends and project growth into the future. And another company says, no, we're going to, we're going to illustrate our dividends on a very conservative manner. And we're not going to project any dividend, dividend growth into the future. And so then when you look at two, div, uh, two illustrations, projections, and they are just projections side by side, one shows greater cash value built up into the future. And the other one shows less cash value build up. And, and a person might say, well, I want to go with that one, that company because, look, I'm going to have more cash 20 years from now. But the fact of the matter is all good insurance companies – what they are doing is protecting your money and they know they have to have contractual guarantees into the future by state law. They have to have more money in reserve to pay out the death benefits and to pay any kind of loan requests, or you just want to give up your cash value and get a distribution. They have to have that money. If they have to have it in more than 100% ratios where if you put it into a bank, they don't have to have the money in the bank at that particular time. So they are actually contractually guaranteed to have that dividend. So some companies, they kind of push it a little bit and say, well, we think there's going to be growth. Other ones say they don't. But then I've done this long enough to actually see what the actual dividend rates are. And the ones that are conservative, they can hit it within six or seven dollars mm -hmm. of a dividend in the future other ones they miss it by literally hundreds if not i have one company that's missing it by thousands of dollars when people put you know large amounts in like a hundred of hundred thousand dollars a year mm -hmm. so you shouldn't focus on dividend rates um you should focus on the access and control of your money absolutely Absolutely. And then um, coming back to something else, and if you are if you are familiar with life insurance, direct and non-direct recognition is something that you yes. might have heard before. If you're not familiar with that, this is probably brand new news to you and hopefully not over your head technical, but it has to do with the amount of dividend that is paid when you have a loan against your cash value. Bruce, do you want to explain that real briefly and why we don't yeah. major on the minors there? Yeah, we really haven't even talked about this, but you can access your cash value by just having them directly distribute it, send it to you. Or in most cases, the best way to do it is in a form of a loan against your cash value because we want your cash value to continue to get interest and dividends uh, going forward. So you, by contract and by state law, the companies have to give you a loan against your cash value. Well, the interest rates are set by the company, usually from some kind of benchmark, um, whether it's a federal uh, funds uh, rate or the LIBOR, London Interbank Offering Rate, they are set. And so, the, so when you have a non-direct recognition company, the company doesn't set the interest rate on the loan based upon whether you have, I'm sorry, you, they do not pay a dividend on your cash value 
based upon whether you have a loan or not. So it doesn't recognize the fact that you have a loan. They just pay the dividend rate out. So same uh, dividend, whether I have 100000 in cash value exactly. or whether I've borrowed out 80000 of it and I still have access to only 20000 20, accessible cash value, they're going to pay the same dividend rate on the full 100000 regardless. Correct. And those, are, those dividend rates are typically a little lower. Right. But then if you get to what they call a direct recognition company, they may illustrate a slightly higher. And in fact, past history shows that they have paid out slightly higher dividends. However, when you do have a loan against the policy for the portion of the, the loan against the policy, they will pay a smaller dividend. So let me give an example. So you got $100,000 of cash value and a company declares a 6% dividend. So you get 6, 6% dividend on the $100,000. But you have a, um, a $50,000, another, uh, the next year you have a $50,000 loan against the policy. So now when the company declares a 6% dividend, they're going to give you, even though you have $100,000 of cash value, they're going to give you only 5% on $50,000 and 6% on, on the other $50,000 mm-hmm. because they're comparing it to the $50,000 loan. And on the $50,000 portion, they're going to recognize that loan and lower the dividend rate to say 5%. So those are non-direct. Does it matter? Well, you have to look at the long-term growth. You say, well, but I get a little bit higher dividend than I would on a a, a non-direct recognition company. Over the course of time, it re- they all come to about the same position. So really, you have to look at the other attributes of the particular company. Absolutely. And I think, Bruce, we've covered a really wide spectrum. We've thrown a lot at you if you're listening to this podcast today. And I hope that you have a lot more solid foundation beneath you to help make decisions in terms of what type of life insurance policy do I want if I want to maximize the privatized banking function of that policy and be able to use my cash for investing in real estate or business or whatever you want to do with that cash value to invest in assets for cash flow and be able to increase and and accelerate that path to time and money freedom. So at this point, I do want to point out that there's not a one size fits all. There's not a one policy that is the perfect design for every person. There are modifications, there are alterations to that. And then there's going to be the difference of the amount of premium that you have to put towards that policy as well. So it does depend on your age, your health, the way you want to utilize that policy. And there might be different Um, funding lengths, there might be different funding ratios that we put in. And so these are all pieces that we're going to bring out in future episodes as well. But it's also a very specific reason why it's important to not just take this information and go run with it on your own and do a DIY type of strategy, but really to work with somebody who can understand what you're trying to accomplish and really help you best do that. So empowered with this information, you have a choice, you can use these guidelines to really figure out how do I run down this straight and narrow of the ideal policy to maximize the privatized banking, or you can use shortcuts and try to find a way to to cut corners. And that can end up costing you more in the long run because it's not going to do what you want it to do. So if you're shopping for your first privatized banking policy, or you already have some in place and you're looking to add into your portfolio, you have this framework to go from 
overwhelmed to really crystal clear on exactly what you want. You're because of that now able to make decisions more quickly and know what you want to focus on and not major in the minors. Now, if you're wishing that you knew this a long time ago, like many people that we talk to, maybe you have a different type of insurance product already in place at this point. It's not always a good idea to throw in the towel, cancel the policy and start from scratch. You sometimes want to say, what is this policy already doing for me? How does it work in the grand scheme of things? And so we really would encourage you to reach out to us and let us help you through a strategy to look at your next best step starting from where you are today. So for more information on specially designed life insurance contracts, you can get our free 15-minute crash course at themoneyadvantage.com slash liquid capital. We'll have that link in the show notes for you. And also you can email us with your questions as we're going to be working through a series on the mechanics of specially designed life insurance and how to use it. Now, if you're already saving money each month, but you want to have a better tool with more tax advantages, better growth, safety, and liquidity, let us help you determine how to implement this strategy in your own life so that you can improve every area of your financial life with this one simple move. We'll help you determine if you're a fit for the strategy or if it's not the right timing for you. You can contact our team today at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or by visiting the link in the show notes that'll take you over to our website. Thank you so much. And in closing, thank you for being with us on this show today. We hope that it was valuable and offered a, a fresh perspective for you. And remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid dash capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated. (laughs) 